today, our subject, UK food sustainability in a global context, is something that is extremely pertinent to whatever is going on at the moment. Um, just as an aside, uh, the Brexit word is going to come up, um, and we know it's contentious, but if we can perhaps avoid getting into to pitch battles on that, we might actually get the content that, that we're here to hear. Um, now, all, thank you very much to all our speakers and sponsors, uh, particularly the U US Sustainability Alliance. Your host today is once again Amy Fetzer, who many of you will know. Um, for those of you who don't know Amy, uh, she's a published author who co-wrote a publication called Climb the Green Ladder, um, which is a guide to sustainability in business. She's also Footprint's head of research. Amy. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's lovely to be here again today. On the way here, I was like, oh, it feels like it's been a while since the last forum. I don't think it necessarily is, but it's good to be here and good to be here debating um, topics. Um, as uh, Nick said, if we can use the hashtag Footprint Forum, that would be great if you do want to tweet about today. Apparently, if you want to get online to do so, you've got to go into your browser, click on conference code, uh, and the password is May. Uh, and you just need to put in your, um, your name and stuff, and then you can, you can get online. But no sneaky working. You're here to listen. Um, so, uh, yeah, so as everyone, uh, as, as we've said, we're here to talk about uh, sustainability in terms of a global uh, supply chain and what that means. Because obviously Brexit, there's often all this talk about the threats of Brexit and, and you know, the fact that the Institute of Fiscal Studies has said that maybe some tariffs might rise by 40% and... The BRCs have just calculated that food prices might rise by 22%. But within this, there's a lot of opportunity as well. So today, we kind of want to look more at some of the opportunities of, you know, we can use Brexit and, and the changes in the way um, that we're looking at our supply chains to redefine our values around welfare and provenance and traceability and safety. So what we want to do today is kind of focus on these issues about how we can bring the whole supply chain together, farmers, manufacturers, um, you know, operators and get everyone together to use this as an opportunity to look at a more sustainable food system. And how does how do these trade agreements play within that? You know, how what do you know? There's a lot of experience on the panels and with our speakers about how uh, trade deals work. So we want to look at how can we frame this? How can we use what we know of our trade deals as as people within food services to try and make the system more sustainable and and make sure we maintain all the all the good standards that the UK already has. Um, as Nick said, we're not going to debate Brexit itself. That's that's not the the point of today. I'm sure there's some great opinions, but um, but if we could park that, um, it would be it be useful. The the UK food and farming um, is it's 100 billion 110 billion a year. And apparently, sixty percent of our exports is um, food. I mean, we all, sorry, we export six percent of our food, and we import seventy percent. So there is an imbalance in the UK. So we get thirty-one percent of that from the EU at the moment. So what are we going to do if we, in the in the future, you know, we know that probably whatever happens is going to be more of an emphasis on the rest of the world. So today, we want to look at what what does that mean, and how can we ensure we get good quality. Um, products coming in and also to examine you know are we worrying about things that we don't need to worry about you know how can we use our influence to uphold standards but you know what impact is this all going to have on the day-to-day -day? you know are we 
you know, most operators are saying it's not making too much of a difference. You know, do we do we need to worry basically? And what are the opportunities? So to kick us off um, on this this uh, great topical topic, uh, we have got the wonderful David Green from the US Sustainability Alliance. Now, David manages the alliance on behalf of the members, um, but he's got a wealth of experience in this area. He's advised the, on the US and UK market for, for many years. Um, and he's also, in his previous life, he was um, editor of Farming Weekly, and he's also written a book um, called Spoil for Choice, which examined food scares in the EU uh, in the 90s. So he's got lots of experience, and he was also a farmer himself uh, in Virginia. So he's going to come and talk to us and give us a good, uh, a good overview of, of some of the topics. Uh, <coughs> thank you, Amy, and uh, Nick and Charlie for opportunity to be here today. Um, you'll forgive my uh, allergies, which I thought I'd left behind me in Virginia, but unfortunately I've been sneezing non-stop since I got here earlier in the week. Um, Sustainability Alliance uh, was set up three years ago by uh, a number of associations, food and uh, farming and fishery associations. Sustainability in the US was not really a hot topic until probably the last two to three years. Before that, it was not something that was being demanded by the, the food industry. Um, really, it came about um, with the result of increasing pressure from customers of US products in Europe, particularly and particularly Northern Europe, for sustainability demonstration, evidence, certification, whatever. Um, that caused a fair bit of consternation, particularly with the US soy industry, because they were required to meet mandated sustainability uh, requirements under the um, Renewable Energy Directive. If they wanted to sell soy oil into the biodiesel market, it had to be shown to be sustainable. So it, it started with eight members. This is just a breakdown of, of the current membership. Um, it goes across the agriculture food sector, also the seafood sector and forestry, and then other organizations such as the renders and the uh, U.S. Hide, Skin and Leather Association. We should have had one of them here today with all these wonderful chairs. <laughs> hide, skin and cattle or horse or whatever. So they basically have come together and they all have different approaches to sustainability. Um, and some of them were not formed into anything specific because, again, their biggest market would be the U.S. But when they started looking at the increasing demands coming back from European customers uh, in Germany, Nor Nordic countries, and the UK, um, they said, right, we need to address this. This is becoming almost a market access issue, so we need to put something in place. What we ran into when we, when we began this, uh, this alliance, it is a, should say it's a US Department of Agriculture uh, funded program. Um, eventually, it will transition out to the members themselves on a, on a funding basis. Um, the issue that came up was, well, what is it that Europe actually wants? And quite a number of them had experience in dealing with Europe, uh, not just in the marketplace, but on controversial issues, GMOs being a primary one for the uh, soybeans and the corn or maize uh, associations. Um, I've worked with the soy industry for a long time on the, uh, the GMO issue, both policy and the marketplace. And so when we started it, we asked our members, 
what their thoughts were of their European marketplace. And the, the overall impression that came back from, from the members was, well, we've, the, the feeling we get from our customers, the feeling we get from general European stakeholders is that you know, they're, they're way more sustainable than us. But they seem to be hidebound by uh, socioeconomic considerations and particularly NGO activities. So there wasn't a very uh, positive view from the US. So then we spoke to, um, I think it was close to 80 stakeholders in, in Europe. The program actually uh, was going to focus on the UK and Germany to start with. Um, but we spoke to stakeholders in the uh, UK, Germany, Netherlands and France and the Brussels associations to get their views. And, you know, coming from the UK, coming from Belfast originally, I wasn't overly surprised um, by uh, some, some of the views of EU stakeholders, and I, I needn't uh, go through all of these. Um, but what really struck me was the bottom point, that how little um, either side knew about the other side, how little people in the US food industry, and some of them that who had direct uh, links uh, with the US agriculture industry uh, knew so little about farming. Uh, the interviews we did were nearly all face-to-face -face that lasted at least an hour. Um, I did a number of them, and one uh, gentleman in the animal feed industry, which is very close <laughs> to the US ag industry because they import a lot of uh, raw materials, he asked me, do your farmers prefer a helicopter or a light plane? And I said, what for? He said, to fly over their ranches. <laughs> I said, no, and the, the fact is that the average farm size in the United States is about 450 hectares. Um, and that's a man and his wife, or man and his son. They are family farmers. 97% um, of the farms, 98%, I should say, according to USDA, are family farmers. So this image, and I had it certainly before I went to the United States and went out to farms, and to see a farmer and his wife harvesting, She's on the combine, he's on the, uh, the loader. They switch around every couple of hours. It was really quite an eye-opener. And what it said to me, I don't know, some of you might know that Sherlock Holmes story, you know, the curious instance of the dog in the nighttime, silver fleece, where Holmes asked, said to the detective, um, uh, there's nothing else I want to ask, but, except that there's this curious, curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. The detective said, well, the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And Holmes said, well, that's a curious incident. And, he went on to solve a crime, not because he was a hyper genius or some celestial power, because he took information. The dog did nothing. And he put it to context. Dogs never do nothing in the nighttime. They'll bark, whimper, whine. The reason this dog did nothing is it recognized the intruder into the racing stables, who was the owner of the dog. But it's this, this issue of information and context. And these two slides show there's information, America, vast, look at all the size of uh, the land they've got, and what's the context? The context is their family farmers. The Americans look at Europe and say, God, look at, look at this mad cow disease, they eat food and food kills them. Over here, our EPA and our FDA look after it, they've got a recall as soon as, soon as there's contaminated peanut butter, it's back in. I had very early on in the GMO crisis when it was at its height, and I'm sure most of you will remember the uh, late 1990s, it was in every page. I still have the newspapers that I brought back because the farmers would not believe what I was telling them. Um, and a farmer came to me and he said, David, I, I hear that Europe has a problem with my GMO soybeans. 
And I said, uh, what's your problem, Dwayne? I can't buy enough seed to plant. And I said, well, <laughs> that's not quite the problem they have. They just don't want it. He could not understand why to him and his father and his grandfather, the greatest technology they had had on their farm that the grandfather said was better than the tractor when it came on, was being rejected. So again, information and context. He had no idea about food scares. He had no idea about NGO pressure or societal pressure. Uh, he just knew he, had, he, he couldn't buy enough soybeans. So when I <laughs> mentioned it to some people over here, they said, whoa, hang on a minute. Um, and to try and correct that, you know, we have, with the Sustainability Alliance, brought our members over and we've done a number of uh, workshops. We had one in the US Embassy uh, a couple of years ago where we ask basically stakeholders, um, folks maybe in this room were at that, we ask them to present their issues and concerns about sustainability and we'll present our side, not just to come over and say, hey, everything we do in America is great, accept it, and let's move on, but it's very much to get a dialogue going. And one of the uh, principal points that came out when we did talk to our European stakeholders was um, that basically the bottom line up here they said, we want to get a human face to what it is you say. Um, on the GM issue, I have brought farmers, uh, as well as these workshops we've done, into the European Commission, into every member state. And when they got a farmer sitting opposite them who explains why he grows the soybeans and the benefit he gets, not just financial, but environmental and uh, uh, sustainable as well. Um, even meeting green groups in the European Parliament I haven't had many people come back and say, you're wrong in what you're doing. They'll disagree with the technology. But having an emotional voice, if you will, um, and why not? It's an emotional voice, but it's a very real voice. And what we got back from that survey was, we want to hear from the people who are involved. We want to hear how you do it. And we've had these workshops in Germany, uh, Denmark, UK, France, uh, Netherlands. And they've always been very well attended and always very productive because each side is getting the context of the other side. What uh, really drove US regulations in uh, uh, agriculture was the, the, the dust storm, the dust bowl in the 1930s. Uh, greatest environmental uh, uh, disaster in US history. Um, two million people, you know, became migrants, basically. Um, farms were destroyed, livelihoods lost. You had 300 meter columns of soil blowing across the prairies, blacking out the sun. It was absolute, and it was down to bad farming practices. And at that time, 1934, um, US Department of Agriculture came in and, and basically stopped uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, I think it was the National Soil Conservation Service to encourage farmers to understand how to farm better, not to go into monoculture, not to grow and grow and grow in the same soil. And it had an absolute fundamental effect and it's still being felt. Many of those reg regulations are still in place today um, uh, from the 1930s. Uh, we have on our website a, a, an infographic that shows that there's been environmental legislation um, in the US back into the 1890s every decade. So again, this sense that, well, 
some of our stakeholders are saying, well, you, you guys got so much land, you can just plow up, you know, cut down more forest, plow, plow up more land, spray it with everything you've got going. You don't really care. Um, well, in fact, they do care because the farmer has to be sustainable. I speak as a farmer years ago in Northern Ireland. I had to look after my stock. I had to look after them in the best way possible if I wanted to make a living and if I wanted the farm to be uh, kept in good shape. So these are just some of the laws and policies that govern US agriculture, uh, Department of Agriculture and uh, Conservation uh, Compliance, Conservation Reserve Program, many, many farmers are part of. Yes, they get uh, financial incentives um, and it is voluntary, but those financial incentives come with very penalizing uh, effect if they uh, don't stick to the uh, the requirements that are on on those farmers in that program. Um, a farmer friend of mine in Iowa is part of that program and he received a, a letter one day with a photograph and it said, um, under the uh, CRP program, you were not allowed to have any heavy machinery crossing section 21A of your land. Please explain why this truck was crossing the land on such and such a date. It was a satellite photograph. It's kind of scary. But again, he had to go back and explain what had happened. If he was con a continual abuser of the system, basically you're kicked out of the program and you have to repay everything that you've been given. So it has a pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, uh, focused uh, attention span. Department of Commerce, uh, Fishery uh, Management Program, and, and then EPA um, has a number of programs as well. And then there are social programs on labor requirements and so on. Um, on our website, we've got one-page breakdowns of, of all these policies. And uh, I remember in Germany, when we uh, had our workshop there, um, the German industry folks were really thrown by uh, the number of these laws. So that, again, is just what uh, how we would see our members would see their system. Um, we have our logo, which is uh, US sustainability. This is how we grow. This is how we grow is really as a collective. Um, it's not just for our members. As the Alaska Seafood people pointed out, they don't grow anything. They harvest it. So it is very much that we want to have a dialogue because we want to do business. Our members want to do business. Um, one of the biggest issues we have, and I know Amy has signaled me, I've got three minutes, but I'm betraying my Irish origins and we'll keep talking. <laughs> uh, I've got a speech impediment, pausing for breath. But the, one of the biggest issues we have coming up, come up against is demonstrating sustainability. In the US, we look at ongoing improvement. The idea of having to have each farm certified for the Renewable Energy Director is, is both an anathema to our farmers, but it's also virtually impossible. You cannot have a one-size-fits-all for an agricultural system such as the United States, where the difference is in Minnesota compared to Florida in climate, soil, topography, everything else are vast. So one of the things that we've been doing and working with our counterparts here in Europe over the last uh, year is looking to see is there a way that we can take our system and meet your requirements, because often we're asked for a certification that you're sustainable. And you'll hear more from Joe Rushton from Sustainable Ag Initiative Platform, which was unknown in the US. We have a similar type of uh, uh, aid uh, organization called Field to Market that carries out four-year 
studies and reports and indicators. So we're looking at, at working with our uh, counterparts here and trying to find a way to that will that will meet everybody's satisfaction. Uh, is it going to be benchmarking or mutual recognition or uh, increased transparency? <coughs> uh, our farmers very much believe in ongoing improvement, so how do you demonstrate that? Um, Sai platform that uh, Joe will talk about, uh, we had one of his colleagues on one of our conference calls with members, and they were so intrigued, I think five or six of our members signed on to Sai platform to have their, their sustainability programs examined. And one of them, the Almond Board of California, you know, was assessed to have a gold standard. Um, I think the soy industry and the rice industry are also looking at it. Um, I will try and belt through here, Amy, don't worry. <laughs> Um, just very quickly, this is some, some of the metrics in U.S. seafood. Um, Alaska Seafood uh, Marketing Institute, which is one of our members. Um, in Alaska, it is a state law that fisheries must be sustainable. Uh, this, again, is something that's not really understood or known here when the main certification for seafood is the Marine Stewardship Council, which Alaska is not part of. Um, one of the beliefs is that the uh, Marine Stewardship Council has become the brand rather than Alaska Seafood. Um, rice also, and this is, uh, these are the metrics from the field to market uh, system, which takes a look every four years. So the metrics there are dropping. Um, I'll scoot through soy uh, because I think it's an interesting case study. You can see here what the, uh, the, the reduction in so many things over the last, uh, what, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. Um, for farmers that use GM technology, they will, they would stand here and tell a better story than I can, that they are much more sustainable. The soil erosion is way down because they don't have to deep plow. Their energy use is way down because they do not endlessly have to spray for weed control. They maybe spray twice a season compared to four or five times a season. So there are many things that are coming benef for benefit there. They're able to grow more crops on less land because of different uh, production systems. They can plant closer together because they don't have to leave a lot of space to get tractors down with spraying equipment. To meet European demands and to meet the European Commission, the Renewable Energy Directive, they've developed their own sustainability assurance protocol which is based on the collection of all those laws that farmers ha either have to have because they're federal laws or uh, take part in, such as the CRP program. And look at the, the uh, SSAP. It basically uh, works on a, a, a macro basis. Um, and it's been benchmarked against the RTRS, which is the Roundtable and Responsible Soy, which for many retailers in the UK saw as the gold standard. It was benchmarked by a sustainability uh, department in the University of Arkansas, who found that they were both good systems. Some had things that the others didn't. Um, but the SSAP has now been accepted by the European feed industry as equivalent to their own sustainability standards. Um, these are just four of the main, uh, main directives of, of that program. Again, as I say, it falls in under uh, a mass balance approach, looking at the laws and policies. Um, a certificate is issued if an importer wants a certificate saying it's uh, gone through and been verified uh, under the SSAP. Uh, the, the audits on, uh, through this protocol are carried out by the Department of Agriculture, who go back to the uh, 
the compliance issue I mentioned earlier, will carry out an audit and I think it's about 11% of farmers every year. Um, I asked one farmer if he'd ever been audited and how much notice he got, and he said a knock on the door. So there's no sort of two weeks to get things <laughs> cleaned up. So just really to, to conclude, um, this is just something I say is the, our global challenge, everybody here in the room, everybody who's involved in the industry, is having to look at how are we going to show we're sustainable. Um, I don't think consumers really expect to have to pay to, to get sustainable food. They just see that, well, of course it should be sustainable. But as producers, we have to be producing at the, at the best cost, the safest food, of course, um, and the food that's the most environmentally uh, uh, sustainable. Uh, the bottom point to me is the, the, the key one uh, of trust. And the only way you're going to get trust when we're operating at a different uh, basis, uh, such as the US and such as the EU, and I have not mentioned the B word, Amy, but uh, is understanding where the other side is coming from. And that's as much for, um, for the US as well. And to finish on the Brexit note, um, we did carry out a short survey, just uh, myself and a colleague, not for the Alliance, but uh, we shared the results with them. Um, of 20 stakeholders in the food chain, food processors, retailers, um, farmers in the UK, of how they would see a UK-US trade deal post-Brexit. Needless to say, um, it was fairly negative. Um, obviously, some concerns about a lot of cheaper US farm products come in. Um, but it, overall, there was... I think of the 20 people, and these again were quite in-depth interviews. Um, 16 of them, I think, say that the US was more willing farming to adapt new technologies and adopt them. Uh, and that is one thing I find about farmers. They would look at technology. A farmer myself, I look at what's going to farm better. If it doesn't work, I'm not going to use it. If it does work, I will use it. So um, the other interesting thing was we asked, have you ever been to the United States, all 20 had, have you ever consciously refused to eat any food in the US? And only one said yes. Uh, he said yes because he refused to eat a turkey sausage in California, because he said there is no such thing as a turkey sausage. Turkey Sausages are pork, and that's why he refused to eat it. So I think a wee bit of a hint what sector in the UK he might have come from. But that again is, you know, information context. People go to the US and they'll gulp down everything that over here and say, oh, it's riddled with GMOs. So um, do visit our website. All the members have got, uh, you know, fact sheets there. Uh, they're in five languages, uh, soon to be seven, I think, Polish and Czech. So uh, thank you. I think I've probably even eaten up my <laughs> question time. <laughs> Problem. Hi, Joe Bailey, Head of Agriculture for RSPCA Shored. Thank you very much. That was extremely interesting. Um, in the UK and certainly in Europe, one of the statements we often hear is that sustainability without welfare is a non-negotiable. And I know we're talking about welfare in the second panel that is coming up. However, not once in your presentation, unless I 
uh, fell asleep at the time, which I don't think I did because it was very interesting. Uh, welfare mentioned. Now, you mentioned, I think, also that the USA is seen less sustainable than the EU. Is that because perhaps welfare is being omitted from your project here? Yeah, I didn't mention animal welfare because I wanted you to ask a question. No, it just didn't come into my mind, and it's not such a huge issue as it is here. Um, and that, again, is something that we re uh, reported back to our members when we did that survey, because when we asked uh, unprompted, what are the three main issues that would concern you about US food? Animal welfare, GMOs were, were up there among the top two. And uh, it was, um, I can't remember. <laughs> it was not that significant. Um, but certainly animal welfare, I think, was, it w in fact, it was, it was higher than GMOs. Uh, I was furiously trying to find that report on my laptop before <laughs> we got in here and it buried some of my files, but uh, I can talk afterwards about that. But I think, I don't know if Stan Phillips from USDA would want to comment on animal welfare. We just have not seen that as a, it's not to say it's not becoming one, and we're certainly seeing more media about it than, than we have previously certainly around some of those big um, big production facilities. Did you want to add something? Yeah, do you wait for the mic, because otherwise everyone will sure. uh, So there, this has been an issue, and uh, it seems as if it is one of the underlying issues that uh, really is driving these media reports about our chlorinated chicken issue. And when you start talking with people who are in the industry or in the government, they do usually agree that if EFSA says it's okay to use chlorinated water to wash salads in the EU, which they do, it should, it makes sense, <coughs> why not use them on, on chicken to try to eliminate salmonella and uh, campylobacter. But they, then the next sentence is, we really are concerned about the animal welfare and the different approaches perhaps in the US and the EU. So. Um, I would just point out that you know we do have animal welfare laws in the United States. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, which I represent here, is responsible for enforcing those laws. And going back to uh, the Animal Welfare Act in 1966, the uh, uh, there's a 28-hour law, uh, federal law, that prohibits um, transportation of livestock for you know more than 28 hours anywhere. Uh, whether they're being exported or across the United States. We have a number of animal welfare laws in effect, um, and we are responsible for enforcing those laws. So it's not like there's no law whatsoever. Uh, and that does seem to be the impression many people have in the United States. And um, you know, this perhaps is outside of the scope of the sustainability, but it certainly will be uh, discussed going forward, I think. It's already very clear to me that this is a key issue that would have to be considered in any sort of discussions we have going forward with the UK should we get to the point where we're able to um, have a negotiation on a free trade agreement. Hopefully we can find ways forward and I would guess there are plenty of uh, American consumers that would be willing to pay extra for some sort of certification of a uh, animal welfare uh, you know, a, a, a production method of 
animal welfare significance. So you have the red tractor here and the various other things that are commercially driven, as I understand it. Um, perhaps there's some scope for a, a solution uh, in uh, private sector standards. But what we want to do is allow consumers to have a choice uh, and for those who are willing to pay for it, um, make that option available to them. For those who, uh, for various reasons, aren't willing to pay for it, uh, as long as the food is safe, uh, we would like that to be uh, an option as well. And David, in terms of your members, do you think that they um, are prepared to, to make those changes to animal welfare to, so that they can meet the, the requirements of that EU market without it necessarily being mandated? I mean, is there a, a sense that now they know it's a priority, now you've got the kind of trust and the dialogue going, that they'll say, okay, let's change what we're doing? I think what, what, uh, what our program has done is introduce, again, going back to my whole <laughs> information and context when coming over here, suddenly seeing the issues and the problems. Um, if you look at the food scares that uh, back in the, the 90s, mad cow disease, E. coli and in uh, beef burgers in Scotland and uh, tainted olive oil, people died, you know, and uh, yeah, so there's always going to be problems. Organic bean sprouts in Germany, people died. And uh, so, you know, our members do look at that. They do look at what their customer wants. If it requires fundamental change in, in how they do things, um, that will be their decision or choice without having regulations. But I, I was a livestock farmer and most livestock farmers I'm not talking about the huge schemes. They're concerned about their animals. They want to look after their animals and give them a happy life, if you will. They're, they're destined for slaughter or whatever. There's an article in the Times this morning about animal welfare, and uh, some of you may have read it, but it was basically saying if, it, if we all go to become vegans, then our domestic livestock are going to disappear. You know, would this be a good thing or a bad thing? So th I think animal welfare is... Uh, it, it certainly was a key issue, and that was one thing that I think our members not so much surprised about, but realised it was a bigger issue than I think they thought. So do you think that if Food Service used its, its clout to highlight that issue with its US and mm. international supply chain, could that force it up the agenda irrespective of whatever the regulations Sorry, if who? Well, if if, 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 if oh, food service. service. Used yeah, I, I think again, you know, to, to go back to what Stan was saying, if uh, it, when it's such an issue here, if you have a post-Brexit trade, whether it's a trade dealer or not, and you know you are looking at animal welfare standards, and you go back and say, I'm sorry, you know, we'd love to buy your your beef or your chicken or whatever, but we're concerned that it meets such such standards. Frankly, if I were a farmer and wanted to do business with you, I would, I would meet the customer's re, you know, requirement. Um, and that's something I, I know I, I know when the soy issue, when the GMO issue came off, and uh, you know, a lot of customers saying we want GMO-free soy. We don't want, you know, we'll buy it from this state or that state. Um, there was a sense that, well, they'll just have to take it. And I remember standing up at a, a meeting saying, <laughs> as long as I know anything about Americas, you know, it, the customer's always right. You know, here's a customer says, I accept all your stories, I accept all the way you grow the stuff and it's good for you. The thing is, I don't want it. And it was a couple of years before they realized, yeah, there's a different mindset. And often looking at Europe, it feels like 
driven by NGOs. And NGOs are much stronger here in the food sector than they are in the United States, by far. Right, I'm going to get you to come sit down for the panel now. So if anyone else has got some more questions for David, there's going to be some opportunities to um, to ask them then. So have a and afterwards and afterwards, of course. Don't want to monopolise. Um, yeah. um, but um, if I could invite the other panelists uh, up. So um, what we're going to do, we're going to get everyone to come sit down, and then they'll just I'll introduce them briefly, but they can say anything more about it. Maybe each of them's got like about an essay. So in lots of cases, if I was for the highlights, they can say some more and then say a key issue. Um, they feel if we can kick off with each of them giving a key issue about um you know about this the benefits of perhaps being able to buy internationally that, that it may bring um leslie would you like to come up and peter flaxman and um edwina so um, um so basically we've got the uh the lovely peter who is uh, on the end uh, Half the end there. So Peter's an expert on the structure and dynamics of the food service sector and its supply chain across uh, the UK and Europe. And he's a former scientist, so he takes a very uh, evidence-based approach. I think he's got a, a great tagline, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. So he's, um, so he's going to give us um, some of his views. Um, we've got Leslie Berger, who's the senior sustainability consultant for ADAS. Um, so she's a senior sustainability, well, I've just said that, she's got over 25 years of experience uh, working with global agri-food supply chains, um, tackling issues such as sustainability and ethical sourcing, um, boosting agricultural productivity and efficiency, reducing food waste, all of these key sustainability issues. Um, then, of course, we've got Edwina Hughes, who's uh, the Corporate Sustainability, Corporate Responsibility Director from Sodexo UK and Ireland. Uh, she's got over 15 years' experience in the sector across uh, all different types of the sector, voluntary, government, private sector. Um, and she's uh, drives the whole uh, Sodexo Sustainability Agenda by pulling together lots of other experts and um, uh, resource. And she obviously, many of you all know, Edwina from her amazing work, you know, I'm a big fan of her sustainable diet uh, post. So we've got a good mix here of um, a bit of operator um, and then lots of um, advisors. So maybe um, we could kick off the panel with um, a bit of uh, uh, talking about, well actually that's it, you're going to introduce yourselves. Um, maybe if we start um, over here with, with David and then we can get the sort of move along with an operator response. So we now, you know, David should, should introduce himself. But if he could just give us a, a little sentence about what he thinks some of the, the key opportunities that this Brexit and new trade deals will bring uh, in terms of food supply and sustainability. I will be brief. I think the question I would almost want to put, put to you is how important is sustainability in your business? Um, and in parallel with that, how important is it to have a measurable uh, system of verification or certification? Because that's something that we are struggling with in, in Reliance and some of the others that I said earlier. How do you meet the customer's demands? If Practically, it's going to be very difficult to implement from our side. And sometimes demands that come down are just intractable um, from a farmer point of view. And I've talked about European farmers for most of the years going. So that's something that I'd be interested to hear back from them. Okay. There's certainly an issue, an issue there. Okay. Um, I think you did a really good job introducing us. <laughs> so I'll just go straight into my bit. Um, uh, in his Brexit. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's Brexit. Oh, this one? Everyone. Everyone, hi. 
Okay. Uh, no, I just said I'm Leslie Berger. I'm a C senior sustainability consultant with ADAS. I think Amy did a, a lovely job introducing me, so I'll just move straight in. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to talk about a Brexit opportunity. So I think that Brexit will give Brexit will give the UK a golden opportunity to renegotiate um, terms for the UK independently of the 50-odd free trade agreements that the EU currently has. Because I think that, and, and potentially put new ones in place as well, because I think that looking forward, the and I'd be really interested in the, in the business's view in the room as to where you think the demand is looking forward for food, because I think it's really outside of the EU with the growing middle class and the growing interest in Western diets in places like China, where it, we're looking at something like 600 million people in the middle class, called middle class, who are looking at more westernized diets. And in Africa, billions, 1.1 billion, I think it is, um, by 2060, will be classing themselves as middle class. So looking at having new free trade agreements and being disconnected in a way from the European community, do, do you think this in your business is something that you're looking forward to? Because I would hope that you would be. <laughs> Um, so it, if I'm talking about the, the food service market, that covers, in my terms, everything from wormwood scrubs to the Ritz and the whole supply chain from farm to fork. If you look at that whole system, there are hundreds of thousands, literally, of businesses involved, um, s um, serving many, many different types of cuisines and types of customer. And I think the, uh, a crucial issue for the industry is choice, uh, and flexibility um, at any si uh, moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I think that is probably an opportunity um, that um, a, a new trading environment will be able to offer. So um, just for a bit of context, uh, Sodexo is a very large facilities and catering company. Um, we have about 427,000 people working for us worldwide. So we're the 19th largest employer in the world. Uh, we work in 80 countries and we have a revenue of about 24 billion euro. So, and that's not going to change after Brexit. You know what I mean? The company isn't going to fundamentally change. Um, we have a global supply chain. Again, that won't change. Um, I suppose in terms of Sodexo UK and Ireland, where uh, what I'm responsible for and where we are, this market, um, I suppose the thing we know is that our clients and our consumers, what they want uh, is local, and they want it now, and they wanted it a couple of years ago, but it's only intensifying. So we 50% of our business is in the public sector, and all of our public sector contracts um, require us to procure at least a third of our um, products from uh, SMEs. And SMEs, by their very nature, w are very, very likely to be local because it's just easier to, to build relationships with SMEs when they're local to you, because actually you already have a lot of difficulties in terms of very large company working with very small company. So you don't want to throw geography on top of that uh, complication. That's probably enough for an intro, yeah. is it? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, great. Uh, so uh, just maybe following on from that, I believe, maybe what we should also, it would be useful to get from the operator's perspective, um, it, it if, if there is this focus from the consumer and from the client on, on local and British, yet we are importing so much, you know, how, how, can, we, how can we meet that need? I mean, it, are there certain products that you, you could look to switching to being more UK? And what could be the priority lines to focus on from the international base and, and making sure that those standards 
are upheld when you do that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I had a number of conversations in, in preparation for this session, and, and I suppose the jury's out on what's going to happen with Brexit. So, um, in terms of supply, we have two primary strategic suppliers, uh, Bunzel and Brakes, who you'll know, and they also have kind of Brexit task force. So we have one of our own and we're aligning with them. So we're talking to them about our supply chain and uh, the products that we source from the EU. And, you know, I suppose what we need to understand, it, it's fact finding at the moment because nothing is going to change before 2020. Um, but we need to understand if there are things that we are no longer going to be able to get in the same volumes or at the same price, then we have to figure out what the alternatives are. There is an argument that says that um, if and when Brexit happens, uh, we may end up doing, you know, producing more domestically because we simply won't be able to take the hit on the price mm -hmm. of, of the imports. And in terms of how you have you looked at some of the the particular product lines you know we were talking on the phone about exotics that you're always going to need exotics so you know have you done any work looking at how you can make sure that those products even though d whatever the overall kind of agreements are set that you can make sure because you've got such a strong set of sustainability criteria that you that you know you aren't having to compromise your values just because the overall trade landscape has changed i don't want to um I don't want to belittle Brexit, but I don't think Brexit is the first major hiccup or challenge, you know, in yeah. terms of supply that we've ever faced. So I get the sense that, you know, what we're going to do is roll with it mm -hmm. uh, and figure out those things as we move along. I think the other thing is that, you know, there is so much uncertainty about Brexit. It's still from a from a personal point of view, I find it still very unclear as to what will happen. Mm. I think um, from the company's perspective, what we're doing is trying to gather as much information as possible, so that when it does become clear what's going to happen, and maybe the people on the panel will know more than me, yeah. um, you know, we can we can make really well informed decisions. But I don't get the sense that that the decision time is today yeah. yet. Great. Can I add something? Yes, of course. Just like to say. Um, we should also look at this in the round and in the context of the um, domestic subsidy scheme because what happens to local producers is going to be highly dependent on what happens to the basic payment scheme. And if actually the funding that goes into production subsidies now is changed dramatically, which it's likely to be and more geared toward environmental payments and payments public money for public good, which is really quite different to how, it's how farmers are supported now, then there may be some short-term um, glitches where actually production is reduced because there may be businesses going to the wall because of this. Yeah. And that may um, especially affect some of the meat production. So I would, I would expect that those who are expecting to procure more locally would already be lining up how they expect they're going to be doing that and making sure that they've got good relationships with the suppliers um, that will have the supplies that they need. So I'd be curious to understand how. But I don't at think that. Sodexo's in charge of Brexit. Uh, that's no, so. <laughs> I think that's the thing. You know, I think if and we were the farmers, yeah, if we were masters of this ship, we would be, and yeah. we we would be on it. But because I guess because we're not in charge of it, yeah. then it's not. You know. Yeah. And in terms, Leslie, in terms of, um, you know, do you know, do you have a set, do you have any figures or any indication of how much um, of the UK food comes from? from rest the rest of the world, from outside of Europe at the moment? Like, what, what kind of percentage um, do if you... You're if you're just looking at meat production, imports and exports, it's almost entirely backwards and forwards between here and the EU. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it just depends on the sector, really. I mean, fruit, we are importing, you know, the lion's share of our fruit comes from Europe. 
And, and what about from the from the rest of the world though? How much is coming? So, so in the moment, it's not very large, is what you're saying. So at the moment, no. if it so no. what, so I mean, if it there grows, are, there are pockets. South Africa, for example, we're importing a lot of fruit from South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, we're not uh, in. We're not self-sufficient really in much of anything <laughs> in this country. <laughs> okay. Um, do we have any questions from the floor at the moment? Okay. Well, let's have another one. Um, I think if we could. Um, so, Peter, as a food service specialist, you've been travelling to the US to study the market. Oh, hello, that's a good idea. <laughs> as a food service specialist, you've travelled to the US to study that market for, for many years. Um, are there any parallels as far as procurement is concerned with the UK? Sorry, I didn't. Uh, uh, parallels as far as. Well, the, in the terms of how procurement happens and operates, are there any parallels with the, the UK system? Okay, so I've got to put my hand up and say that I'm not um, very conversant with procurement as it operates in the States. I only see it from with, with uh, um, a UK lens. Um, but I do see um, parallels. Um, David earlier um, was, was talking about the US scene. And one thing that I've, I've noticed, because um, I go regularly to the National Restaurant Association show, it's the NRA show, but not the National Rifle <laughs> Association. <laughs> anyway, um, the... Um, and I, I've, I've been struck every year there's a theme, um, 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 not, not a constructive theme, it's just the way that it works. So it was um, uh, GMOs, it's been organic, last year it was vegan. And this year there wasn't a theme in the food, but there was definitely a theme in the, in the, the, whole, um, uh, uh, the whole environment, and that was about eco-sustainability. Mm -hmm. It was relating particularly to packaging, mm -hmm. um, but I can't help feeling that it can spin over into food as well. So they're, they're we're, li we're living in a, a world which is supposedly getting smaller, um, and I can see um, long-term uh, convergence, um, or more convergence than we've got now, but there will still be significant differences. So that's a, a good point, actually, because the um, we've got our um, footprint trends report coming out soon, and one of the big trends in that is the move towards sustainable ingredients and the fact that people are now looking at not just the ingredients on the plate but up the whole supply chain. So do you think that you were talking a lot about um, different positioning? You know, How do you think the, the differences are globally and between perhaps the US and the UK about how people see sustainability and how they define what is a sustainable food and what elements should be considered to be able to claim that something is sustainable? <coughs> $64 question. <laughs> um, there's a different uh, dis uh, definition for sustainability, sustainability depending on who you talk to. Um, I, I, I think just what Peter said I, I think was interesting um, in that that trend in the US will continue Many trends, you know, in anything food environment used to come out of California, and now they're more likely to come out of Europe and move uh, westwards. So I think th the interesting thing about the eco-sustainability discussion that the uh, National Restaurant Restaurants Association is indicative of how I think it will continue to be become more of a trend in the U.S., um, particularly in the global world uh, where U.S. companies are trading with the European markets. 
Um, the influence that Europe has on other countries in, in food uh, and the food supply and what they, they want. We've seen this, um, uh, again, going back to GMOs, that uh, the influence of the European issue uh, affected how legislation was developed in Korea, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, um, Thailand, Japan, to an extent China. So I think that trend will, will continue. And, uh, you know, ju as you mentioned, Amy, uh, it's, not, it's across the supply chain. I think, again, that comes back to the issue of how you're going to, uh, how's the end uh, supplier, the retailer, going to assure his uh, customer uh, that it's a, a sustainably, sustainably, sustainably produced whatever. Does that mean it's at the farm? Is it the, the trucking service, the manufacturer? How, how are you going to get sustainability all the way down back to the farm or back to even the, the supplier of the seed that a farmer will plant? Um, that, to me, is almost, sounds like almost impossible uh, <laughs> to, 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 ima to imagine. And uh, what sort of system would guarantee it? Um, I guess I would just like to put a plug in there for the sustainable development goals because I think we're not just looking at two countries or two trading blocks. We're talking about global sustainability. And I think sustainable development goals, 17 goals, and so many of them are related to food production and the resources that go around food production. So I think that this is forcing the businesses at the top to engage with their suppliers. That may only be with their first tier suppliers, but then there's the more and more onus put on them to actually find creative ways, whether that's to work collaboratively through organizations like Sustainable Agriculture Initiative or others, um, on projects that allow them to get right down to the level of the grower or mm. all those aggregators in between to actually know what they're doing. It's, you know, it's all well and good to have a certification and say tick the box and someone audited somebody along the way, but do you really know what's going on on the ground? And so I would say sustainable development goals are doing a good job and all the other volunteer agreements that are forming around it to actually find creative ways to make that whole supply chain sustainable. So do you think that could be something that's bubbling away in the background, helping to address these issues of, of making more global standards? that are gonna help drive up standards and, and make some of these issues about what the exact trade deal is and are people's standards different from different countries? Do you think that will help find to find ways of, of, of measuring that equivalence yeah. between standards and, and of, of, I mean, reasonable ways of knowing what's happening on the ground because mm -hmm. it, it's no way easy. And what about, do any of you have any particular um, insights on what you think the benefits of perhaps increased trade uh, internationally might be? Are there some, uh, we're talking about some of the challenges around it, but are there, are there some, some benefits that we should be uh, lauding or getting excited about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, you know, I think as a very large global company, we, you know, we depend on a global supply chain. And Amy, you referred to the fact that we have lots of sustainability criteria. Um, a number of them depend on our, you know, on a really um, global supply chain. One of the things that just strikes me, just in terms of um, trade and the important of importance of the supply chain, is just about that trend in um, diets and sustainable diets and something like jackfruit, which is from Kerala in India, and that being a really viable alternative to meat protein in in diets. And you know, just talking off the top of my head, but like we'll we'll want that, you know, and I think that it sort of underlines the fact that we need to be able to connect with people um, all, around the, all around the world and to 
build relationships with them so that we can get that kind of produce into our into our supply chain and then out to our consumers because if if this trend towards um plant forward or plant centered um diets uh, continues you know the, the ingredients like that are going to be central to it oh, it's got to continue it's not a trend <laughs> it's a it's a new uh, movement for, for and sustainable development goals. Knowing how um, those jackfruit growers are, you know, being treated and the, the situation on the farm in India is going to be important to you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Ooh, the, the um, sustainability, the word sustainability is interpreted in many different ways. Um, I mean, if you speak to a, 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 um, a, an, an eco-aware fish and chip shop owner, He's going to be talking about recycling his, his fat and oil. That's the sustainable bit as far as he's concerned. Um, and it could be for a, a, a restaurateur buying local actually means, uh, and I've got, a, I've got a cousin who opened a restaurant in London which, and he sourced all his food within the M25, every, every bit within the M25. And didn't, uh, that didn't mean that he actually lo shopped at the local cash and carry, but, <laughs> but it, it, it actually came from there. So I think the, the, the word sustainability um, has different meanings to different people. Um, uh, in, in the big sense, there are big issues to be dealt with, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that um, that there are these many different layers uh, that contribute to what sustainability actually is. Oh, well, that's why we worked with Nestle to produce the Action on Sustainable Diets, which creates a great definition for food service to use on what we mean by sustainable diets, which I strongly recommend that you read, and I have no bias on that at all, seeing as I was rather heavily involved. So, um, but, uh, so, okay, so we think that uh, sustainability is a challenge because of the different interpretations in practice, which is which is true. But do we think that there is this um, opportunity be because of the kind of the chance to revisit the global supply chain? Um, that there's a way that we can we can use um, the 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 might of food service to kind of help drive up standards in terms of how you know how much how much flexibility is there for people within food service to actually say no, we're going to dictate these standards even if they aren't the same as whatever government ends up settling on. Maybe, Edwina, do you want to start? Uh, well, I, I suppose I'm just thinking about um, something like Espresso, which is our coffee. Uh, it's our global coffee offer, and it's triple certified. So it's Fair Trade, it's Soil Association, and it's um, Rainforest Alliance. So uh, I'm not sure how our American <laughs> colleagues feel about it. I'm not sure if they <laughs> get the accreditations. but. Yeah, that was very important for us to have those accreditations and it's important for us to understand that when we put fair trade on something, it means that the cooperative is, you know, is aligned to what the fair trade movement stands for. And people feel different things about fair trade, but, it, you know, it gives a farmer certainty in terms of the price they get for their crop um, and it, it helps them get over the bumps, you know, uh, in different seasons. So... Yeah, there is an opportunity. I mean, I suppose there's an opportunity for the private sector generally in this environment um, in the UK. There certainly feels like there's an expectation for the private sector to step up um, where government may be pulling back, certainly with a, with a conservative government. Um, but I'm sure the rest of the panel probably have more insightful comments. Do you, does anyone want to add something? I guess there, there may be a role for the food businesses to step in if 
support to the farming community is reduced and some of these nice to have sustainability measures on farm may be just a step too far, whether that's biodiversity in the hedges or um, you know, reducing runoff into the water. Um, I wouldn't like to say that our in the UK the environmental measures won't cover that, but we don't know mm -hmm. exactly what the extent of the support payments are going to be. So if the growers themselves can't pay for some of this, then is there going to be a role for business, the buyers, in some way to step in? Mm -hmm. That would be my question. That would be my question as well. I mean, where, where is the uh, drive or requirement for sustainability in the UK? Where is it coming from? You know, when we uh, talked talk to our members a couple of years ago, they felt it was very much UK supermarkets that was driving it down, uh, often, you know, nudged in certain directions by, by NGOs. Nothing wrong with that, but it was the supermarkets were held out as the, the, the driver of, of that. And uh, I'd just be interested from food service industry, uh, is it something that you are reacting to or are you also driving that down to your suppliers? Does anyone in the audience want to give a comment on that? Dave? Thanks, Charlie. So I'm Simon Galkoff uh, from the Casual Dining Group. Um, I mean, to answer your question, it's something that we're driving very strongly as a business. And we're doing that because we believe it's the right thing to do. But also we believe it's something that our customers, our guests find important. And one of the reasons that they dine with us is because of um, our sustainable credentials. And it does vary by brand to the extent that we go. But um, as a principle across the organisation, yes, it's very important. And it's something that we're, uh, we're certainly pushing and trying to kind of spearhead the industry through. And would you agree that things like the Paris Accord and the Sustainable Development Goals are helping to drive that policy shift as well so that there's more regulation and more concern about potentially meat taxes or other things kind of underlying a shift towards looking at your supply chain and more supply chain responsibility? Um, yeah, I think that probably probably is the case. I think it probably is, yes. Yeah. Just on the sustainable development goals, I just um, from my point of view, I'm finding them useful as a framing tool and maybe I just need to become more familiar with them so that, so that I can understand um, how to really practically use them. But having said that, we are... It is helping us to um, collaborate globally. Our previous chairman, Michelle Ondell, sits on a on a panel on food waste prevention. Mm -hmm. So I think it's um, SDG 12.3. Yeah. I think the fact that they have kind of sub points isn't helping them a lot. You know, yeah. it's like there's like over 30 of them and then there's loads of sub. So, uh, but you know, the pr purpose of that is to drive down um, food waste uh, by 50% by 2030. So, you know, certainly Sodexo working with Unilever, working with other uh, global organizations. So there is a perfect example of actually the private sector stepping up to, to, to make a, a difference. And that kind of goal won't be solved without collaboration. You know, so maybe that's the same with a lot of the other goals as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly, sorry. Because I'm certainly kind of funny, you know, kind of a really interesting uh, conversation. Because I perhaps hadn't appreciated what seems to be kind of the gap between the way we are in the UK and in the United States. So you know, it's almost for us. It kind of feels like it's a license to operate now 
Um, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just kind of how it feels from from my position. So in terms of sustainability, in terms of animal welfare, and on the human side as well, kind of you wish we haven't mentioned yet the Modern Slavery Act, mm. which you know is massively important in the UK. Um, I don't know. It just feels like there's a there's a massive void, perhaps. Peter, you were going to say something. Uh, could I just sort of uh, ask when you're developing your own uh, guidelines or? Uh, sustainability system do you work with your suppliers to do you drive it down to them or do you work with them say right we we need to understand what you're doing on sustainability so we can form our goals in line with what is going to be practical and and deliverable yeah so i think we've we've kind of we do work in collaboration with our suppliers, absolutely. But I think we've we've moved from the position of kind of a conversation around it. What should we do? So you know, these are our practices and these are our principles. So you know, we have an ethical sourcing policy. We have a kind of a food sourcing policy. So we make it very clear to our suppliers kind of what our guidelines guidelines are and how we're willing to operate. And then we kind of, I mean, we find most <clears throat> most of our suppliers are on board with us because they're kind of operating kind of similar principles. Maybe that's some of the kind of the supermarket conversation that you mentioned, because the supermarkets in the UK have definitely led the way, and uh, you know food service has been kind of you know, some way behind them, but I think it's certainly kind of you know, following through on their principles. But it's much easier to do it in the UK now because of the way the supermarkets operate, and your manufacturers just kind of you take it. They, that's just generally what they do. I think perhaps our organisation, because the types of manufacturers we work with, it's not unusual to them, so they're, they're not at all surprised. So I never get any kind of suppliers coming to me saying, oh, we've, we've read your kind of you know, your sourcing policy and we found that really strange. We just never get that because it's just kind of a given. Now, we've had some quite here. good chat here. I think um, we are 20 minutes, is probably, or 25, whatever it is, is up. Um, has anyone got anything? I don't want to... Has anyone got another burning point that they want I to make, or is this a burning question? I, I, oh, just, you do? Yep. I just want to pick up on, on, yep. on what Simon said, uh, it's, uh, not to argue, but just to reinforce it, that um, it, the consumer um, <laughs> is an important part of this discussion, uh, quite nebulous, and there are consumers who don't give a, um, <laughs> don't give a monkeys for, for sustainability, yeah. and for others, uh, they live their whole life around it, and uh, then there's the mass in between. So I think they are very important. But, but it is also necessary for um, commercial businesses to buy into sustainability, mm. which they do, clearly they do. Yeah. So uh, there's a whole reinforcing cycle here. And it may be that it's actually a flywheel that's just slowly beginning to turn and we come back in 150 years' time, and if I'm wrong, you can have your money back, <laughs> um, that the whole thing is spinning beautifully and we're very sustainable. Except we're now faced with major mergers in the retail sector which are aiming to push down prices by 10%, and those, uh, that 10% is most likely going to be faced by the suppliers, perhaps some of the food service businesses in the room. So how do you uphold the, the high sustainability and welfare um, standards that we'd like with a uh, further redu reduction in prices, mm. costs, cost cutting. I'll leave that to the next panel. Amy, sorry, just make sorry. one more. I won't dominate this conversation. <laughs> just make kind of your one more comment. But building on what Peter was saying around the consumer and the guests, I mean, it's massively important. So, you know, particularly we haven't mentioned millennials yet, but they've got a completely different expectation compared to kind of my generation. I got old, unfortunately. It happened overnight. I'm not sure when, but it did. <laughs> um, but you were there, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just hugely different. So if you think back to kind of, you know, 
my generation, the whole thing was around organics. And, you know, people were very interested in organics, but there was this whole dilemma and conversation around, are people willing to pay for it? Well, they kind of weren't, so that kind of disappeared off a little bit. But millennials, it's just completely different. They might not expect, they might not expect to pay any extra for what they want, but they absolutely expect it, and they won't come to you if they don't get it. Yeah. It's really, really different, and that's the whole power of social media now, which kind of you know, wasn't around when Charlie and I were young. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think uh, if you'll all join me in putting our hands together for this uh, fantastic panel. It's been absolutely uh, brilliant. Thank you very much. So we now have uh, Joe Rushton um, from the Sustainable Agricultural Initiative Platform. Um, now, Joe is a biologist. He's got an MSc in Environmental Technology, um, and he's got loads of experience in corporate social responsibility, stakeholder management, and agricultural supply chain sustainability. Um, so you're, he's going to talk to us about the utopia of sustainable global agriculture. Is it possible? So I hand you over to Joe. Okay. So, yeah, firstly, what a title for a talk. I was like, <laughs> wow, you know, I could take this anywhere. Sustainable agriculture utopia. Um, is it possible? You know, let's, let's jump into that one. Uh, my second thought was, actually, this is going to be pretty, uh, pretty difficult. At Sci Platform, um, where I work, we're a membership association for food and drink companies wanting to kind of work together on sustainable sourcing and sustainable agriculture. Um, we get our members together and we build solutions. We share our knowledge and experience. And we also run projects where our members have overlapping supply chains. Um, but, you know, my time horizons are very business grounded, 2020, 2025 even, that's kind of as, as far ahead as we go. Um, here are just some of our members. Um, if, you're cu if you're curious, a lot of the usual suspects, but um, you know, a, very, a very active community. Um, so, here, so here goes nothing. You know, let's jump in there at the deep end. What is, uh, what is utopia? Um, and I had some idea, but I wasn't exactly sure. So like any good millennial, I, uh, I turned to Google and in fact, the concept of utopia uh, was invented by an Englishman um, called uh, Sir Thomas More. And um, it's a kind of hypothetical society where everything's perfect. You know, it, it's, um, it's a, they're living in harmony, a complete um, balance um, with kind of nature and the economy and society. And uh, with, with unim unimagined standards of living, um, you know, and here we have a farm that's on the cutting edge. This is, this is modern, uh, this is kind of utopia to a lot of people. What have we got here? We've got uh, drones, we've got robot uh, tractors that are driving themselves, we've got remote sensing, kind of precision agriculture, um, all of this stuff. But I guess kind of two things struck me, and that's, um, you know, a utopia is a bit of an oxymoron. You know, it, it's perfect, it's this perfect or ideal deal thing, but kind of perfect to, to, to who? And uh, to build any great civilization or kind of community, um, it's going to take co uh, compromises. And you know, how can we have a kind of compromised utopia? You know, then we're just kind of back to um, then we're just back to the real world. And I kind of the same is true for um, you know our platform. Um, I guess kind of one of my conclusions would be that kind of if we want to get to here, it's going to take collaboration right the way through. Um, the supply chain. And then kind of secondly, utopia is all um, relative. You know, there are lots of reasons why I could argue that we're kind of living in utopia now. In, um, 
kind of we're a hundred times wealthier than we were as a society two hundred years ago. We're also the wealth is also um, more equally uh, um, distributed. Um, you know, w if, since the 1980s, we've gone from 42% um, extreme poverty down to 10%, and we're kind of making progress, eradicating a lot of the, the wor world's most um, deadly infectious diseases. Um, but um, now, if you'll forgive me, a little detour. Um, whilst I was Googling, I found some cool stuff, and kind of firstly, isn't Google uh, predictive search, you know, an amazing insight into a, into a country's biggest uh, kind of fears, uh, insecurities, hopes, dreams. And you know, I, I, I performed this search in Denmark. Is sustainable agriculture, ninth down on the list, that's a topic for today's, today's talk, is sustainable agriculture po possible? I don't know about going. Number three on the list, is sustainable palm oil vegan? Um, so um, yeah, not so smart Denmark, it turns out. <laughs> um, and then secondly, because I just uh, couldn't help myself, I had to do it. Um, is Brexit, uh, number one, is Brexit happening? It's a bloody good question in my eyes, you know, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's see. Um, and then kind of final stop on the detour, this, um, th there are a few people that have actually tried to create farming utopia. Um, this is Fruitlands Farmhouse in the United States, Massachusetts, and doesn't it look pretty? So um, that's, um, kind of one bo box test, but let me just read this out. This is a u utopian agrarian commune um, established in the, in the 1840s based on a transcendentalist principles. Um, don't ask me what that means, but um, unfortunately, many of the men in the, uh, in the commune spent a lot of their time philosophizing and teaching, not actually much time working the land. Um, and uh, they rejected um, animal labor. So wouldn't you know it, uh, they didn't have enough food for the winter. And after only seven months, uh, Utopia was, was abandoned. Um, <laughs> so the, the <laughs> I think um, Utopia for me is kind of, a, is a, is a bit like kind of trying to, trying to fast forward, um, you know, and tr trying to jump ahead to where you want to be and kind of skipping out the, the legwork and the groundwork and, um, and I don't think that's ever going to end in success. And I think, actually, you know, a lot of small increments in the right direction. You know, and then you look back and you think, wow, you know, you know look at where we are now. Um, this is amazing. You know, I think that's um, a better question. And you know, how do we overcome and, you know, uh, a lot of the challenges that are facing agri agriculture? And there, there are many. Um, of course, whilst we've made fantastic strides in reducing um, extreme poverty, there are still 10% of the population that, that go hungry, 800 million. Um, we all know it. Population growth is going to grow by... I am sorry. Here we go. Population growth is going to grow by um, 2 billion by 2020, uh, by 2050. Um, so that means 2.8 billion people hungry if we don't do anything. Um, and to feed all those extra people by 2050, we're going to need 70% more calories. And that's a kind of a huge, a huge ask. And, um, you know, it, it's actually not a case of just distributing the calories that we've already got. I mean, that, that would help, you know, putting the West on a diet, but it's still not going to, it's still not going to kind of cut it. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why, why doing this is going to be a lot more difficult than it was in the past. Um, firstly, there isn't as much land as available. We can't go ahead and double 
uh, the, the amount of land under cultivation anymore. That's um, like we did since the 60s, that's not going to work. Um, secondly, um, water, water scarcity. Um, actually, probably a bigger limiting factor to, to kind of um, growing more food is, is probably um, the water. Um, you know, even if the land was available, the water wouldn't be. And um, a lot of the water tables are actually are, are at critical levels. And we have one project going on in Doniana in Spain. And if nothing is done there, the aquifer is going to dry out. And the, you know, the result being that one of uh, Europe's most important wetland habitats, habitats will be, won't exist anymore. And the, you know, the, the local economy there, which is based on strawberry production, that won't exist. And the community uh, that it supports, of course, um, won't exist either, and it's a very complex landscape issue, but we're making lots of progress. The third reason is going to be a lot more difficult is, of course, climate change. This is global wheat uh, yields projected to uh, 2050. There's going to be winners, there's going to be losers, but on the whole, the net effect is going to be um, a loss um, in production. And, and the, most the, the people that are most vulnerable are going to be in those countries where they have a high percentage of GDP, uh, which is reliant on agriculture. If you look at Ethiopia, a third of their economy is based on coffee. Now, what happens if they, if because of kind of climate change, they can't grow coffee anymore? Um, and it's not just shifting uh, locations as well. It's um, if we get droughts or big scarcities in the big growing regions, that kind of that increases prices and um, social unrest because a lot of the, a lot of the countries that are poor and are relying on importing a lot of food for their cal calories, they won't be able to feed. If the prices go up, they won't be able to feed their population anymore. It's really really serious. And then, of course, agriculture is the, uh, one of the largest um, contributors to greenhouse gases. So what happens is we could be stuck in this negative feedback loop um, that would be very difficult to get out of. And then finally, yields are going to be a lot harder to or more complex to increase because we can't rely on just fertilizing more or kind of, um, you know, and, and we've, in some cases we've reached a little bit of a plateau, plateau in, in terms of how, uh, how we can move forward with, um, with breeding. Um, but what are the opportunities? What can be done? Um, and there's opportunities on the kind of consumption side around diets and waste. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that because that's not my area of expertise. I'm going to kind of stick to production. Um, we're making massive, massive progress in terms of um, genetics. Huge, huge progress. So, um, you know, people are applying the latest technologies in terms of uh, genomic selection to develop new varieties of ca uh, cassava. Um, that could play a very important role. And then, of course, you've probably heard of CRISPR, which is the kind of specific letter gene editing. Um, that could be kind of, a, a, well, that could, I think that that could really take the kind of yield plateau and turn it, and kind of, um, we could just kind of grow yields, um, uh, you know, and really kind of get to the next level. And then, of course, we've got drought-resistant maize. Um, that's already in the market based on this new very uh, precise um, mechanism of, of, uh, of, of genetic um, modification. And it's got obviously going to be way uh, really, really important given the kind of threat of climate change. Um, we have to kind of close the yield gap. And um, you know, we have to extend what we've got um, in the developed world to, so, uh, to smallholders in uh, sub-Saharan Africa particularly. Um, and a lot of it is very simple stuff. It's kind of um, how much fertilizer to apply and, and when, that was going to get us a long way towards that increase and kind of ensuring that female farmers, uh, women farmers have the same uh, access to resources as, as men. Um, 
we have to get better at land management. This is a, a picture from Sussex in the UK. One third of the agricultural soils are kind of un, uh, are at risk, um, you know, through things like eros erosion, salinization, excess excessive fertilization in some cases, and it can take up to 15 years to get back to full productivity um, of your soil. You know, and, and it, it's it's kind of it's it'd be very it's, it's simple to simple to fix kind of legumes in your rotation, better soil and fertilizer, ma fertilizer management, minimum tillage and cro cover crops. Actually, what, what we can do is turn these soils into a carbon sink. And uh, you know, that's going to be positive for yields and then also uh, climate change. Um, there's also a, lot, a long way to go in terms of irrigation efficiency. Um, but finally, all of these efficiency gains, they're going to have to be done in the context of uh, you know, the community and society at its heart, you know, um, rural landscapes and biodiversity. Now, th there's, there's one example I've seen in China, um, uh, whereas a kind of land use reform had a very negative impact on the rural community. What they did was they, they wanted efficiency. So they, um, there were lots and lots of small farmers. They said, here you go, we're going to give you an allowance for the rest of your life. You don't have to farm anymore. That's you uh, done. We're going to take over your farm operation and we're going to turn all of those small plots into, big, into a big uh, farm. And uh, you know, the, the downside of that is you, you've taken people's life, well, you've taken their kind of way of life uh, away from them. That's all they know. That's what they, you know, that's all, you know, that's been their life. And, uh, you know, it, it just destroys the social fabric. So really, really serious as well. But then I'd just like to wrap up by saying kind of what can the private sector do to help? Um, you know, and overall, I am very optimistic. I mean, there, there are challenges there, but, um, you know, with the range of new technologies that we've got, if, um, if pr the private sector takes a kind of global ownership of, uh, of this stuff, the future is bright. Um, and I think it can definitely shift us towards uh, zero hunger. But in terms of what the private sector can do, um, I think th there are four key things there. Um, extra drivers for uptake for more sustainable practices. Um, they can share and mitigate farming risks, especially for, for, uh, for smallholders. Um, a huge role in promoting new technologies and spreading good ideas and kind of support research funding and uh, the design of better government policy, um, you know, and, and maybe even kind of defending agriculture from harmful policies. Um, and then there are several places where I think it really needs to improve. Um, the private sector needs better engagement with policymakers. Um, I don't think there's enough, especially going on at the landscape level. You know, it's, it's going to be really, really tricky, but um, scheme owners need to become more outcome focused. Um, that's going to be very hard, uh, you know, doing things like what Filter Market are doing and actually kind of working on metrics instead of qualitative questionnaires. Um, I think that we need to do more work on assessment, uh, more work on improvement in investment in the supply chain and less on the assessment side and the assurance, which is essentially kind of brand, brand risk uh, mitigation. And then finally, um, there are so many different company codes, guides, requirements, schemes, you name it. And kind of one of the, one of the things that Sci Platform is doing is, is trying to um, address that and find a way of, you know, all of our members can work together on a, a common approach. And, and um, that, you know, that idea is kind of really embodied in the FSA. It's what I spend most of my day, um, day job doing. And then I'd just like to um, finish up on one um, final slide. Um, and this is some really interesting s research, and it's fairly counterintuitive. I, mean, I, I saw that headline, and I thought, oh, no, what are herbicides doing to the nu nutritional value of, uh, you know, of our food? And actually, it's completely the other way around. So 
Um, there's some new research out of the University of California and um, four of the most commonly applied herbicides, um, they're increasing protein by as much as 12%, increasing iron uh, in the corn by as much as 50%, um, uh, fructose and glucose concentrations up by about 50%. And you know, I'm sure that no marketeer would ever go near this. Um, you know, but um, I, and there's a lot of room when it comes to improving the communication of science um, and and agriculture because you know 50% more iron is a is a really that's a, that's a serious thing a lot of the world is iron deficient so thank you very much for listening um, happy to take any questions now Glad you didn't fall. Um, so you just mentioned about uh, companies who are investing in improvement investment. Sorry, improvement and investment, yeah, rather than assessment and assurance in their supply chain. What would you cite as kind of best practice in that area? And I think your point is is correct in that you say that assessment and assurance is where the emphasis is. I can't see I can't see us backtracking on that because we've got to be sure of our supply chain, and that's our kind of risk mitigation. But I'm interested in what good practice would be then in terms of improvement and investment in supply chain? Yeah, really, really hard. And it, I guess it depends on kind of who your stakeholders are. Um, when it, you know, if, if you're putting something on your brand and you're communicating to, su to your consumers that this is a sustainable product, you have to be 100%. You know, there's no um, doubt about that. But I think, I think that actually gets us into a bit of a trap. And th there's this kind of assessment and audit cycle that just is sucking the available resources out because you know, you know the, the money for sustainability is not big. And if we're spending a bigger proportion of that on assessing and auditing and then re-auditing and actually we're doing less of the, the stuff that I, I, I mentioned, so less um, outreach, less dissemination of uh, great new ideas, less investment, less sharing of risks, then um, we're never going to ever move that kind of bottom line and it just becomes if you're good enough to get the certification, then you go for it because you can market it. Um, but not enough money is, is kind of spent on that capacity building side and getting uh, people that um, can't meet the, the label or the, the requirement already, uh, getting them up to the, to the mark. And I, in terms of what best practice is, it's really hard to say because I don't think there are really many companies out there you know, doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, I suppose what I'd give you is an example of what we're doing. You can please, tell me yeah, what you please. think. So I, I talked about our espresso coffee and it being fair trade. And actually one of the things we've done is we've, um, we're giving a small grant, uh, it's £20,000 a year, um, to a cooperative in Peru so that the women coffee growers can use that money to do other things, so small livestock and whatever. But the other interesting thing is actually that some of the money is going to be used for upskilling those women as kind of ambassadors because they're not heads of their own households. They're not economically independent of their uh, partners or husbands. Um, and so I think it is about the capacity building. But it's it's only a small thing and it's it's very niche at the moment. 
and I suppose it's just about that kind of balance between the, you know, the assessment and kind of making sure our supply chain is doing what they need to do to reach our standards. That will always be kind of paramount. But I agree with you then that, you know, you do want to also then think about the capacity building. So we're trying to do both. But the, the latter is, is a much smaller scale thing. The, the former will always be the, you know, the kind of uh, top of the castle. Really cool idea, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you give it to me first, right? I'll, I'll just well just follow on with that. A quick example of um, probably some good practice going on is um, what Tesco do with their supplier network. So about ten thousand, I think it's going up to about twenty thousand suppliers are now signed up through the network, and that's driving a whole lot of information and sharing and collaboration around sustainability initiatives. So. For a lot of their first tier suppliers, they really don't know how to engage quite a lot of their tier two, tier three, and so on. So this is providing them tools to do that and ways of communicating as they sign up their two tier, tier two and tier three suppliers onto the platform, then they get more information. And obviously what SAI platform's doing and other, other tools like the Cool Farm tool, which provide information how to make your agriculture more successful. Is that me or you? <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, uh, you know, anybody hasn't looked at the Tesco Supply Network, I'd recommend you do that. Sorry, Chris Stanley from Anthesis, by the way. We, r we run the platform. <laughs> Great. Question uh, on the end, just the way behind, please. Hi, um, I'm Anne Charlotte. I work for a company called Olio that reduces food waste. And um, while you've mentioned during the presentation that you're not an expert in food waste, uh, is this something that the SAI looks at at all? Because with one third of all food produced never being consumed, it does feel like the solution to feeding the growing population, partly at least, is with food redistribution? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not an area that Side Platform uh, specifically works on. I think there are other organizations that probably do that better than us. We do, um, I think, so definitely consumption is massive, and I've heard that third statistic as well. And I think if we, if we do want to get to that 70% increase in calorie output, that's going to be one of the big ticket items that, that needs to get us there. Um, and in terms of the developed world, a lot of that is kind of on the, on the consumer side and um, kind of uh, putting in things that stop consumers wasting so much food. And then in the developed world, it, it, the problem is actually much more get it you know not once people have actually bought it but getting getting the food from the farm gate to retail and there are lots of things that can be done there in terms of um kind of better um ha you know uh, better harvest practices better storage techniques um better roads so you can get kind of the produce to the market faster um and better you know better silos so that you're kind of stopping sp stopping soilage uh, spoilage there's very simple things that can be done there and and that's an area that would be in scope for us um but we're kind of a f farm level really uh collaboration I'll just follow on what Joe said um, with regard to your question is that Sci Platform do now have a tool which allows all their food business members to uh, input information about all their sustainability concerns and challenges and food waste is part of that collaborative 
um, tool. So if, they're, if, a, if a member is interested in working on food waste, they can find other SCI members who are also interested in working on food waste, and that could be anywhere in the world. So it could be the sort of production issues, level issues, storage, whatever, post-harvest losses, or it could be consumer issues. So there is an outlet there. I know it isn't something that SCI platform have focused on before in terms of their own projects to get involved with, but now we're hoping yeah. that SCI members, the member companies themselves, might join together. So I'd be happy to talk to you about that afterwards. So uh, can I also please welcome up Stan Phillips, who you've heard from before, and um, who's my third on this one? Oh yes, Inda. So uh, obviously you need no introduction to um, So you heard a little bit um, uh, from Stan earlier. Stan is the Councillor for Agricultural Affairs from the USDA. Um, so he's been there since 2014 and um, he's responsible for coordinating the US Department of Agricultural Policies and Activities in the United Kingdom and in the Republic of Ireland. And the great thing about Stan is he grew up raising livestock, so he is somebody who at least comes from this world and understands it from a, from a practical perspective. Um, then we also have, sorry, my paper's rustling here. Um, We've got Inda Pujani, Pu no, I'm pronouncing that wrong. How should I say it? Yes, t t <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> and he's the founder and managing director of Six Butterflies. Um, he is a pioneering international sustainability CSR and change management strategist. I forgot to practice that earlier, I do apologize. Um, and he was the former head of sustainability at Nestle um, and his recent focus has been um, on water, natural and social capital and the circular economy. So we've got a lot of um, expertise here in front of us. And this panel is, um, is all about looking at um, sort of some of the myths and legends around um, the more moving towards a more international supply chain. So it's an opportunity for us to talk about, you know, do we need to be worried and maybe bust some of these myths open a little bit. Um, if we maybe start um, with each of you, as we did before, just giving us a little point on um, what, what you think is a sort of key issue in this debate about concerns around what it will mean in terms of welfare standards and uh, supply chain standards and hygiene and things, what, you know, whether what, what you think the key um, issues are around that. Uh, and do please uh, use the mic. Okay, yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh, and thanks to the organizers for inviting me here today. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, I would say, as I thought about the point that you've asked us to mention at the outset here, one thing that springs to mind is, um, you know, in, in the United States, we hear a lot about fake news these days. Since the last presidential election, I guess it's become uh, quite a, a term that's used very often. And Can everyone hear at the back, by the way? You're okay. Yeah, you're so um, a lot of the media stories that sprung to life after the Brexit referendum concerning U.S. food had these, from my perspective, myths. Um, the chlorinated chicken one that I mentioned earlier is one that seems to be popping up everywhere. But there are others out there that, uh, that surfaced as well during the negotiations between the United States and the European Union um, on the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. 
we never were able to conclude those negotiations, but a lot of the same stories surfaced then. So my, pers my feeling is a lot of U.S. companies and a lot of U.S. Uh, government officials see these stories, but they really, uh, their perspective is, well, if we're able to negotiate an agreement, we'll bring the product to the United Kingdom or to the European Union. Consumers will have the choice then, and they can decide if, if they want our chicken or not. Um, and it's, you know, they're, they're saying, yeah, these media stories are out there, but fake news. So my office uh, commissioned a survey with the, the Gallup company to try to assess how important these media stories are in the UK in forming consumer perceptions and consumer buying patterns. And we did, uh, we surveyed 3,000 consumers across the entire UK. And the finding was, uh, maybe it's not surprising, but it, it's helpful f in framing the issue for my colleagues back in Washington that UK consumers will, they, they really believe these stories. It's not just a, a myth to them and it will form their buying perception. So going forward, uh, addressing some of these myths, I think is important for the United States. And there's some benefits there as well if we can get the facts on the table and dispel certain myths, uh, maybe uh, change some perceptions here in the UK. Eventually we get to the point where we do have the opportunity to sell these products. Um, they may, provide some consumer benefits because they might be uh, more affordable in some cases. Uh, we're not there at the moment, but that's that's a, a point that I wanted to make at the outset, that I think there's some opportunities to shed light on what the real consumer concerns are and maybe address those concerns. Perfect. Thanks. Okay, uh, f from my point of view, I think, I. I, I there's maturity levels in sustainability, and I think that's the aspect that's missed out. Okay, and so the maturity levels in sustainability is quite important to understand where we are and uh, where people are at. So, in organisations, you know, that's the work I've done in the past, but it also happens at country level and at block level. So the U EU was becoming quite sophisticated and a lot of things started the discussions there, like the circular economy discussion. I was quite involved with that at an EU level. And, and I think there were myths on all sides with Brexit. I, 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 and I'm going to say that. But there are some real facts. And one of the key facts about food and agriculture is there was a 5.8 billion euro subsidy to the UK. And that's a big figure. And that's something that will have to be addressed and has to be addressed. But also, it was about <coughs> the issue of um, understanding, as people, do we really care? And, and, and that's the thing to me that really matters. As human beings, do we really care? And if our values are not about caring and it's just about trade, then I think we're in trouble. We're in big, big trouble. Because the myth that's gone around is this green and pleasant land. And anyone who's been involved in agriculture, involved in social issues, and involved in economics knows that it's not a green and pleasant land. 
I can take you to the streets of East London and show you modern slavery working at. I can take you to farms where there's immense cruelty. I can take you to places. So I, I think we mustn't believe you're there. You're not there. there there's a long way to go. And to believe that uh, everything's okay because consumers say so. I, I can show you study after study about consumers. If you go to a consumer and say, what's the thing to do? Every study I've done, the consumer takes the easiest route out because they don't want to think about it. They don't want to pay about it. But government regulation changes things for the good. Look at the sugar thing we've just had recently. If it wasn't for government actually putting their foot down, if it isn't for good regulation, I worked on Habitat. One of the best things ever to came out was the red list. Now, I don't know if anyone understands the red list, but that was protection of animals. Because it was regulated and because there was pressure behind it, things change. So government has a big role, and it's the values we want to live in society. If you want to live in a society that's just uh, take it all, then there's, uh, then you're going to have big uh, losers and small winners. Yeah, I just actually like to pick up on. Um, well, uh, there's a few questions that actually formed in my mind when when you were speaking, Stan, and um, I guess I was thinking, you know, why do all of these myths, you know, and legends exist out there? Is it, you know, do we think it's because, um, you know, it, it's just a, you know a, a bubble of misinformation and coincidence, and or or is it or is there actually somebody that has an interest in, kind of people not knowing what the truth is um, and kind of making it harder for consumers to get to the truth about what their food is and where it comes from. Uh, I spend a lot of my time uh, thinking about this. Is this actually, is this, maybe this is working better. Um, I'm sure that there are reasons why these myths persist. Uh, we we crave simplicity. Most uh, most of us want a simple answer. Often these questions are quite complex. Uh, so uh, going back to this question about uh, the chlorinated chicken, for example, there's uh, statistics that uh, show that uh, incidence of uh, foodborne disease in the United States because of Campylobacter is lower than it is in the European Union. This is the statistics that come out of the, the uh, CDC, the uh, um, WHO. That is a, a, a fact that is difficult to explain because often you're comparing apples and oranges between how we calculate in the United States versus how it's calculated in the European Union. Um, but people hear this uh, concern that we're washing all our chickens in chlorine and it's an easy story to get across. They don't like it. Same thing with uh, antimicrobial resistance, I think. There's a lot of uh, stories that, um, you know, there's much higher use of antibiotics in livestock production in the United States. That's a simple um, statement. When you start unpacking a bit, you, you can find out that in the United States, we include 
a whole series of non-medically important uh, products called ionophores in the antibiotics category that are not included in, in the European Union. So that, that expands our uh, uh, number on how much antibiotics we use in the United States against the United States. Uh, against the European Union, same thing, uh, we collect statistics on antibiotic use from sales data where it's collected by uh, farmer voluntary reporting in the EU. So there's, there's differences. Uh, but it gets back to this craving for a simple answer, I think, and that's why people, these myths persist. They, they're simple myths and they're difficult to dispel because the answers are often complicated. Do we have any questions from the floor? Lots of people to explode the myths here. Come on, people, you must have some questions. Okay, well, I hold think. Um, oh, we have. Hi, Alice Willett from McDonald's Restaurants. And um, as I'm sure it's no surprise to you, we're not um, subject to it. We're subject to quite a lot of myths um, as a business, especially about where our food comes from and how it's produced. And it's something that we've been working on over a number of years to try and bust those myths and also link many of our sustainability credentials and the progress that we're making, both um, in the UK and Ireland, um, which is the business I work in, but also on a global level to do that. And I think the majority of the answers that we're coming up with are being as open as possible, taking people into our supply chains or taking our supply chains to people where we can through, through virtual reality technology or other means, but also being engaged in lots of the discussion debates like today and, and like other options. Um, so my question really is, what do you think can be done to help businesses dispel those myths as they move forward and as the questions get more challenging? Who wants to start? can chime in. I, I, I think the approach that McDonald's is taking to be as open and as transparent as possible is, is a good approach. Um, again, often the answers can be quite complicated, so uh, it's always good to see the processes with your own eyes, but there are certain things that are unseeable. You, you can't count the number of bacteria on a, a piece of meat without uh, doing some laboratory analysis. So. Um, there needs to be confidence in regulatory measures that produce an outcome uh, that verifies that a particular product is safe. And we need to explain to, you know, communicate the, uh, the risk of a product, the mitigation measures that we're taking, and um, we need to be able to communicate communicate that to a consumer in a way they can understand. So that's a role for government, but I think there's also some a role there for uh, the private sector as well. Uh, but again, the transparency of these things has got to be a part of uh, all of the work we do to try to explain to consumers what we're doing and how we're making products safe and sustainable. That, that leads me onto a good question because Inda, you were talking earlier about can you trust labels? Yeah, I, I just I did some research many years ago, and um, one of the things we found there were over 250 labels existing, uh, and which one, which one does the consumer trust? And what we found to our 
well, well, the findings were that they thought they were organic. Everything that had a label on it was organic. And it was, it was quite interesting. You know, you had so many different labels and they all thought that meant it was organic. And, and yet these labels were telling different sort of narratives and were, were trying to explain uh, along the supply chain what was happening. And, and, uh, and I think recently there has been a trend amongst quite a few uh, major retailers to actually take labels off. There was quite a few that have come off recently. And has it made a difference? I don't know. Uh, and so I think, you know, we do trick ourselves into thinking consumers are really bright and fantastic and they know everything. And uh, we do trick ourselves in thinking we're fantastic. Uh, but the power of marketing and communication, don't ever forget how powerful a brand is. A brand is the most powerful. Um, one of the most sort of profound, when Nestle bought uh, Roundtree's uh, back in the 1990s, they bought it for 250 million, but, and that was over 22 times its earnings. So the power of the brand is phenomenal, and the brand is one of the most trusted things modern society has. So if you have an organization that has a brand, you can feed that person anything they want because they trust the brand implicit. And it's a modern, quite a modern phenomenon, this thing about trusting brands. Uh, it's, you know, they've become the new gods of the world in that, you know, this is provenance, this is my lifestyle, and if I have a brand on me, this is the way it, tell, it, t it talks my narrative. So I, I do think brands do have an obligation and do have the responsibility to actually s say what it is, but they're not going to because marketing and the power of profit is, is greater. So do you think in this context, in terms of supply chain then, that it's even more important that brands are making sure that in a future, future in a certain future of supply chain, there's going to be different uh, I mean sources. If, 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 if the labels were so good, we would have got rid of all of these supply chain issues because they've been around for 30, 40 years. So mm. it's not a new thing. So if they were that good, we would be addressing the same issue again and again. Like child labor is still a major issue. Slavery is a massive issue. So I, I think supply chains, you know, well, you know, if you want to remove something and you put your full energy and power, you can do it. So it's the will you need and the finances you need. Joe, did you want to add something? Yeah, I guess um, I fully fully agree with you that uh, you know uh, uh, the the brand, uh, how powerful brands can be, um, and I guess. I just had a kind of thought, and it, it's kind of if myths get out there, kind of that are, that are damaging to your brand. Um, you know, what can you, what can you really do about it? And I, I guess uh, all I think, I, I think a myth at the end of the day is just a powerful story, and people like to believe powerful stories, and people therefore people like to believe myths. And I don't think that you can fight a, a story with facts. You know, I, I don't think. I think if you believe a story. All of the facts in the world. If, if people try and explain that to you, why why, why the your story is is why the myth is based on false false premises, it will just drive that 
story and that myth kind of deeper into your mind. But I, I do think the approach that McDonald's is using is kind of working slowly. But I, I think you also need to fight with stories, you know? I don't think you can just fight with facts about why. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. So just, just on another research I did, um, this idea of reputational damage, we think, well, it's going to really harm us. I, I, I don't want to give the company's name, but a few years ago, there was a tragic, tragic case where over 150 people were killed. And everyone thought, wow, this is really bad reputation for this company. Guess what? Its profits went up by 15%, purely because of the brand. Because every time someone heard of that company's name, it's a psychological association. There. So when they went out to the high streets, they actually shopped there. <laughs> so, you know, uh, don't, f you know, don't, don't <laughs> what I'm trying to say to you, when you think about these things, you've got to be more intellectual and more holistic rather than this simplistic nature of just saying, oh, well, I think this is a myth or this that. Um, and I think but how does it apply to the supply chain in terms of a global? Well, Let's apply this. Tell me how to apply what you're saying, which will make sense to you know a changing more perhaps more international supply chain after Brexit. Oh, okay, supply chains after Brexit. I mean, that the first thing. The first thing is if you are a product, if you are a brand, or you're an organisation. You know, what is your main purpose? And if it is about mass consumption, profitability, and then that's going to be the shortest route you take. It, mm. it has to be, because if you've got shareholders that are asking for uh, your report every quarter and uh, returns, that's where uh, you're going you're gonna to deliver. You're, that's where the outputs are. But if you take a long-term view and say, right, we want to change things and we want to be human, we want to be caring, we want to have values, then you invest in it. And there are a few companies that are really genuinely going in and saying, okay, how do I invest in this? How do I take care of this? And guess what happens to those companies? They get bought out by major brands. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and then they become everyday high street brands. So I think the ones that do it and do it well, I, you know, there are some great examples. I, I mean, I, I've come across some organizations that actually genuinely, as people believe in it, rather than trying to portray an organizational sort of myth. Yeah. So I think if you really, I, I know I'm not answering your question, but the, anth the answer to your question is about values. If you genuinely care and you genuinely want to do something and in your heart uh, you, you care about the environment, you care about people, you care about animals, you care about things, then you will live your lifestyle and you will create an organization that delivers to that. And you know, Body Shop, when it first started, had the great intentions of doing that. And it, you know, to some extent, it still does. It works on the ground. It looks at its supply chain, and you know, there are things. But there are things wrong with it as well. So, but there are, you know, you can do it, but it takes investment, and that means the shareholder is not going to get everything he wants. <laughs> okay, we've got a question here. I would say, and we take it back to the Sustainable Development Goals, because this is where um, the big brands can be really using their big brand for good, and that's by collaborating with other big brands, and that's really the big emphasis on this time round on Sustainable Development Goals, as compared to last time when it was more about countries and governments. This is more about the big brands doing the right thing and doing, them, doing it collaboratively, so on that note. Have we got any more questions? 
Okay, we'll have one more from Mike, and uh, and then I think we will... Thank you, Charlie. Uh, Mike Hansen from WSH. Um, question for, for the panel, but really it was started off by a comment from Joe, um, particularly regarding um, genetically modified organisms. Um, and it was, given the importance of GMO uh, and increased R&D going forward as we move, as the you know climate change really starts to take hold um, to a larger extent across the world, um, some of the myths around GM and the values of GM, um, how do you think, given, given that most majority of R&D is carried out by the main organisations such as Monsanto, Syngenta and so on, uh, and not by central government, uh, therefore, the public believe that, well, these large organisations, well, you would say it's safe, wouldn't you, because that's your business. Given that the governments tend to go whichever way the wind is blowing, um, so the research is not done, so the public don't believe it, so they automatically believe if you have GMO uh, crops, you're going to grow two heads or whatever, but it's essential going forward. How do you think... Um, so that those myths can be broken down to make sure or to get us to a point where um, the public recognise the importance of GM and how important it is to feed 9.6 billion people by 2050? It's, it's a really, really good question. Um, and my background is in biology and therefore GMO has never been scary to me because I, just, because I understood it. And I think the unknown is a very scary thing, but then again, you can't kind of teach everybody, you know, uh, a fundamental, you know, uh, genetics class. You know, that's not gonna <laughs> that's not gonna work. Um, so I, I think that kind of the big mistake was that, and I was, I, you know, I, I you know, I, th there's nothing really to back this up, so it's just a kind of hunch. But GMO was never a premium product. Um, and I think uh, most new technologies get acceptance because they are premium products that are expensive and therefore that they're, you know, they're in demand. And it, people don't really care um, about the way it's done because this is a status symbol and I want it. And it's, um, and it's you know, it's, it's and, and, and that's, you know, so, so I think that's kind of maybe an opportunity there to kind of undo some of that damage. I think if, if we just stick to kind of, staples and it's kind of hidden away there in starch and um, kind of um, you know fructose and glucose and high fructose corn syrup it, that's never it's just I don't think it's ever gonna you, we're just never gonna do it but I mean if, if you give somebody <laughs> I don't know something crazy like a um, yeah I don't know just a, yeah, a, a premium product and I don't know how, know how you would do that and get market acceptance but that's kind of just my my hunch. Well, that has been uh, absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much to all our panel. It's been very insightful. Thank you. Uh, I just want to finish by saying I hope everyone's enjoyed this afternoon. It's been uh, really interesting. I think there's been some really, uh, really wide topics covered. I think it's, uh, it's very interesting, this theme that you were just talking about, about sort of dialogue and being honest and transparent. And that's, you know, where we started with, um, with David about how there's a lot of fear around this global supply chain and a lot of the... the the, the issues actually come because we don't understand what each other is thinking and what the different practices are. So it sounds like you know working on that dialogue and all these 
different organisations that can help facilitate that are really important. And it also sounds like, the, you know, this, as you were saying, and, uh, all the power of brand and the power of uh, food service and companies to drive change themselves and to help come together to help um, guide policy, but also through your own procurement practices to help ensure that standards uh, remain high and issues such as animal welfare remain important and on the agenda. So, uh, so I hope um, there's been lots on the... Uh, different organisations out there that can help um, as well. And it's been great to hear a bit more about some of, of the work and the SIA platform and all of these different um, things. So thank you all for coming. Thank you for uh, all the participation in the audience. That's been great. And um, it's been a very interesting afternoon. <laughs>